All right, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 16. So if you've arrived there, will you stand out of reverence for God's word as we read Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Hear what Paul writes. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive and he gave gifts to people. But, when, but, but what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith And in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into Him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we consider your word this morning. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, again, good morning, New Breed. It's, it's been a good morning, hasn't it? It's been a good morning. For those of you who are watching, uh, uh, it, it's somewhat of an interesting morning because we had a low registration of some of our members. We actually didn't have a low registration. We had a low turnout, but we actually, I think, have more guests with us this morning uh, than we do uh, members, some of them here to celebrate uh, and watch in person what God has done through uh, baptism, and, and some of them who have been longing to come and visit for a little while, and we're finally able uh, to come and visit. And so welcome to you all. For those of you who, who don't know me, <clears throat> my name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as the lead pastor here uh, at Newbreed Church, and, and we are actually in a series entitled Biblical Friendship. Biblical Friendship. We, we, we began this series last week, so, so you're not too far behind uh, the curve. We began this series last week, and I told you uh, that what we were going to do is we were going to spend a couple weeks just building the foundation, building the foundation for biblical friendship, just spending some time trying to stress the significance of biblical friendship in the life of a believer. And and so before we move on in the coming weeks to talk a little bit more about some of the practical ways we build biblical friendships, what they should look like, which which I know is what some of you really want to get to, we've got to lay a little bit more of the foundation. And, And so last week as we began this study, we considered this idea that we are built for friendship. We as human beings, we are actually built for friendship. If you recall at the, at the beginning I, I stressed uh, of last week, I stressed three reasons why we need to think deeply about this study of biblical friendship. First, because friendship has been an essential part of the growth of the saints for all time. 
Uh, we talked a little bit about that, how, how, how there is no growth in the Christian life apart from the Christian fellowship. And then what we looked at was actually how throughout history, saints who have gone before us in America today. Uh, but, but the second reason we stress this and why we need to think deeply about biblical friendship is because our, our culture makes biblical friendship difficult, but not impossible. We talked a little bit about that the American culture is one of this hyper-individualism, that it's all about you, it's what makes you feel good, it's, it's what you want, it's your hopes, it's your dreams, and other people fit in only as much as they benefit you and what you want. And so our culture actually makes biblical friendship difficult, but not impossible. And the last reason we gave, and this is where we kind of planted ourselves last week and we fleshed this out, was because we are built for friendship. We looked at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and we spoke about the fact that we are made in God's image and our God is a Trinitarian God. Our God is a God who lives in relationship. He's one God in three persons and when we, we, we talked briefly about that and how our God lives in communal relationship with the other members of the Trinity as the Godhead and so if we are made in his image, there has to be this communal aspect to who we are as well. We talked about how Scripture makes it blatantly clear that it's not good for man to be alone. It's, it's, it's spelled out there in the pages of Scripture. And then finally, last week, we talked about the fact that the blessing of the covenant, specifically in the context of Genesis 1 and 2, the creation covenant, that the blessing of the covenant is meant to be lived out in meaningful relationships. And so what we talked about was that we will never truly experience the blessing of being in covenant with God unless we are in covenant with other people because the blessing of the covenant is meant to be lived out in meaningful relationships. So those, those are a few of the reasons we gave. And if you want to dive into that, if that sounds interesting to you, you can, you can catch up on our sermons on our podcast or on our website, um, whatever you want to do. But we talked about those again, just kind of laying a foundation for us to build on, on, on why we should think deeply about this idea of biblical friendship. And so this morning, what I want to do, I know some of you might've been hoping we'd get to some of the, the practicals and fleshing this out. And I promise we're getting there, but, but I actually want to add another stone to the foundation before we move on. I, I want to communicate one more reason why we need this study on biblical friendship and why we need to think deeply and carefully about biblical friendship. Again, it's the focus of our time this morning, and the idea is in the title of this morning's sermon. Biblical friendship is ministry. Biblical friendship is ministry. I know that we don't, oftenly, we don't often think about it like that. We don't see our friendships as our ministry. Typically, we think of ministry as, as sharing the gospel with the lost. We think of ministry as serving on a service team or sacrificially going above and beyond to meet the physical need of someone. We think of ministry as what the pastors and the leaders and the musicians do in church. And, and I want to be clear, those are all aspects of ministry, amen? All right, make sure you're awake. But that's not all that ministry is. And I, and I want to show you, hopefully from our text this morning, how Biblical friendship is ministry. But I think to some degree it shouldn't surprise us that as Christians we should think of biblical ministry, biblical friendship as ministry. Because one thing that we know is that our salvation was not simply about our eternal dwelling. It not only changes where we are going when we die. Our salvation also changes how we live and understand our life in this world. 
That's why immediately after Paul speaks to what God does in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He says, you are saved by grace. And then he says in verse 10, for we are his work workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And as we often say at Newbreed, the gospel not only saves us from something, the gospel, it saves us for something. And so what that means is that the gospel changes everything. And so this leads to the first point that I want you to see as we consider this idea that biblical friendship is ministry. Here's, here's the first point I have for you. The gospel affects everything, especially our relationships. The gospel affects everything, especially our relationships. I mean, this fact is highlighted in just examining the overall structure of the book that we are in. You know, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing from a prison in Rome to the church. So, so Paul's in prison, he's writing to the church, and the first three chapters of this book, I think in some ways you could see them as somewhat theological. I mean, there's practical implications, but there's somewhat theological meaning. In chapter 1, what Paul does is he just lays out the beautiful reality of who we are in Christ Jesus. He talks about our identity. He talks about the fact that we are blessed, that we are known, that we are predestined, that we are adopted, that we are, we are sealed. He talks about all of these things that we are in Christ Jesus. He lays out the beautiful identity of a believer. But then as you move into chapter 2, he talks about what the gospel does and how it is we have that identity. And, and he begins in chapter 2 and says, But you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work, and the sons of disobedience. He kind of tracks through that. Then he gets to verse 4 and says, But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He gets to verse 8 and 9, uh, what, what a lot of us who grew up in the church know, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, so that no one should boast. Then we saw in verse 10, and he says, And this this has implications for how you live. He says, because God wants you to walk in these good works that he's prepared beforehand for you. But then he continues on in the second part of chapter 2 and speaks not only to the fact that the gospel reconciles us to God, but he speaks to the fact that the gospel reconciles us to one another. Those of you who, who are at Newbreed, you know we just finished a series on race, justice, and the cross. We, we talked through the reconciling power of the cross, not only played out in our horizontal relationships, but also play, or in our vertical relationships, but also played out in our horizontal relationships. That the gospel redeems people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, from, from different stories and different cultures, and unites them under the banner of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel does. And then you get into Ephesians chapter 3, and what Paul does is he really starts to spell out his specific ministry. And he says, listen, this grace that I have received, this gospel that has changed my life, it has called me, and what it's called me to is to make much of Jesus among the Gentiles. And so even in that, what he's doing is showing, continuing to show the incredible power of the gospel to graft in the Gentiles into the family of God, which is, a good, which is good news for us, amen? Because I don't know all of your stories, but I, I think that most of us probably aren't ethnically Jews. So it's good news that Gentiles are grafted in. I praise God for that. But then you come to chapter 4, and, and a shift takes place in the book of Ephesians. 
So, so the first three were kind of speaking about the gospel, what it does, who we are in light of it. But then what the, the shift that takes place in chapter four is now we see how we live in light of it because we see there in the very first, the very first word of chapter four, it says, therefore. So, so what Paul is doing is he's shifting the focus of the remainder of the book, the remainder of this letter, with the first three chapters telling the incredible story of who we are in light of Christ and what he has done. But now in chapter four, he shifts and will spend the remainder of this letter talking about it, how we live in light of the revolutionary gift of grace. But I want you to notice this because we often overlook it. The very first thing that Paul addresses in light of the gospel is not how you read your Bible. It's not how much you should pray. It's not how to share your faith. And all of those things are important, amen? Like that was an amen, amen? All right. Like th those are important, but, but, but that's not what he starts with. In light of the gospel, the very first thing that Paul addresses is how we should understand our relationship to the family of God. The first thing that Paul thinks merits his attention in light of the incredible work of Jesus is how we relate to the family of God. Because what Paul understands is that the gospel affects everything, especially our relationships. And in these beginning verses, we read or that we just read, we, we see this play itself out in three significant ways. We see how the gospel changes things, specifically in terms of our relationships, in three specific ways. So in light of the gospel, our relationships now reveal faithfulness. Our relationships reveal faithfulness. I mean, look at the first verse again. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. So here, at the very beginning, Paul is making it clear. He's saying, look, what, what I'm about to say is a matter of faithfulness. He says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I want you to be faithful in light of the gospel that has changed your life. I want you to walk well. Right, What Paul is thinking about is, is basically, listen, I want you to get to the end of this thing, and I want you to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. He wants them to walk worthy. And so what does he address first? How we walk in our relationships. It's how we live in covenant fellowship in light of what Christ has done for us. Again, Paul sees it as a matter of faithfulness in the Christian life. That means relationships in the church. That means deep friendships. They are not optional for the believer. And again, that in some way stands against the culture we live in, right? This you've got to do it on your own. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Make something of yourself. That it's all about you. It's about what you want. It's about, it's about your desire and your truth. And Paul is saying, listen, for the Christian, it's not about you. It's about us, collectively, the people of God. You know, it is a privilege to receive the gift of salvation and the calling that comes along with it. It is a privilege to not only be saved, but to also live in light of that salvation in this world. The theologian F.F. F. Bruce once said this, he said, those who have been chosen by God to sit with Christ in the heavenly places must remember that the honor of Christ is involved in their daily lives. See, the honor is not just played out when we get to heaven. The honor is meant to be lived out in our daily lives and how we 
interact with those around us, specifically in the covenantal family, in the church. Again, not saved, not only saved from something, but saved for something. And Paul understands this, which is why he is urging people to be faithful specifically in the context of their relationships. And and we can't miss this. I know I said it briefly. What Paul is communicating, there is such weight behind this. He is communicating intentionally that you cannot be faithful apart from the family of God. And I would argue to take it a step further, and you'll see why in a little bit, apart from biblical friendship. You cannot be faithful. Think about the implications of that. I mean, this is what Paul starts with. So that means that if you are the, the, the greatest Bible reader that the world has ever seen, right? If you are in, in constant communion with the Lord through prayer for four, five, six hours a day, if you are sharing your faith every moment of every day, if you are doing all these things, and those are good things, but you are doing them in isolation, apart from the family of God, Paul is saying, look, you can't be counted as faithful. You can't. I mean, even as I'm saying that, I'm reminded of of the picture we saw, remember, with Ruth and Naomi? When Ruth says, not only will your God be my God, but your people will be my people, and that wasn't random, it's because you can't have one without the other. You can't have the person of God without the people of God, and at the same time, you can't have the people of God without the person of God. That's why we argue as a church that membership matters. It's not that we don't love you, it's not that we don't care you, but you don't get the privilege of the family apart from the Father. We cannot be faithful apart from faithful relationships. Our relationships reveal whether or not we are being faithful, but not only that, in light of the gospel, our relationships are defined by who God is. We're still talking about how the gospel changes things, so so not not only do... Now do our relationships reveal faithfulness, but our relationships are defined by who God is. Look at what it says in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now what Paul is doing here is fascinating to me. And I hope you catch this because he is basically reminding believers of the unity that we share in the Christ, right, in Christ. You saw at the beginning there, right? That we are one body. He, he says there's one. But then he speaks of one spirit, one Lord, and one God and Father. And, and so this is interesting. And in some ways, it's the exact same thing we saw last week. While Paul is speaking of unity, he intentionally reminds the church of the Trinity. Do you see it there? He speaks of the Father, he speaks of the Son, he speaks of the Lord, which is normally understood to be Jesus. And again, it goes all the way back to what we saw last week in Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then we saw it in John 17, 21, when Jesus is praying and he says, may they all, speaking of his disciples, he says, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. You see it in Genesis. You see it in Jesus's life and ministry. You see it in the apostles. You see the significance of the Trinitarian relationship and the unity within the Trinity as being our example of what relationship and unity should look like. That's a pretty high standard. But what that should do is push us to take our relationships and our friendships seriously. So what that means 
is that our relationships are not ultimately about a single individual, but rather the collective whole. Remember, Paul emphasizes one body. And as we have just mentioned, we cannot exist in faithfulness as a single individual. Our faithfulness hinges on the strength of our relationships because what is being made into the likeness of Christ is not ultimately you as an individual. It is us as a body. God is making his singular body, his bride, into his image. Now, yes, we are individually members, a part of it, so our individual faithfulness matters, but what God is redeeming unto himself is one bride, one body. Again, this, this kind of stands in contrast to how we like to view things in our culture. We're not as communal, but, the, but the, the people reading this would have been like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, we're a people, we're a body, we're in relationship. One commentator speaks of, of the significance of the body being made up of different parts when he writes that we should view each other as, and I quote, he says, members of one another as truly and intimately as the organs of the human body. And what this means for us is that we don't define our relationships by earthly standards. We don't look for relationship goals based on the world standard or what makes for a good relationship or friendship. We don't, we don't look to the world for that. We examine the health, the purpose, and the direction of our relationships based on the perfect standard of God. We evaluate the health of our relationships based on whether or not we are looking more like Christ because of them collectively, whether we are looking more like Christ. So we see the gospel affects everything, especially our relationships and the fact that now in light of the gospel, our relationships reveal faithfulness, our relationships are defined by God, but also our relationships are empowered by God. And the gospel makes that so. Because look at Ephesians 4, 7. He says, now grace was given to each one of you according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so here, we see one of the outworkings of God's grace. See, God's grace, the, the pinnacle of what God's grace does is it saves us. But, but it is God's grace that also empowers us to live faithfully in this life. It's the same grace. I mean, that's why, again, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not from works, so that no one can boast. And, and that same grace is the grace that's active in verse 10 when he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Brothers and sisters, we, we cannot forget that, that every gift we have comes from God. Right? That's, that's James 1.17, that, that every good and perfect gift comes, is coming down from the Father of light who does not change like shifting shadows. And every gift that we have is meant to be used in faithful relationship for the good of others. Do you realize that? That God does not give you gifts. God does not give you spiritual gifts for your benefit. He gives them to you to benefit the body around you. I mean, 1 Peter 4.10 says, Just as one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. So God's grace, in terms of spiritual gift, is varied. Not everybody gets the same gift. Uh, not everybody can do what I do. Not everybody can do what Chris or Niall does. Not everybody can do what you can do if you are in the family of God. They're varied gifts, but those gifts are given so that we can build up the body. And that's the beauty of it in the context of biblical friendship. You don't have to possess innately within you the ability 
to be a good friend. You simply need to rest in your great God who has equipped you by his grace to be a good friend. You see, the gospel changes everything. Especially how we view and understand our relationships. But here's the the second point that I want you to see from our text this morning, thinking through this idea of biblical friendship as ministry. The second point is that our relationships are not a matter of preference, but ministry. It's kind of getting at the heart of of, uh, what we want to talk about, that our relationships are not a matter of preference, but ministry. Look again at verse, beginning in verse 11. Paul says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. Now, now this is fascinating to me, and it kind of stood out to me this week in a new way. I've never paid too much attention to it, if I'm honest. You know, often when we, when we use that text, right, when we quote that text, that he has, uh, he has given some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors, teachers, uh, to build up the body to do the work of the ministry. Like, you've heard me do it this way. Nine times out of ten, we, we'll pull that out of context when we as pastors say, like, hey, y'all are slacking. You've probably heard it that way in a church. Like, y'all y'all got to do the ministry. This is, this is your ministry. And that's true. I'm not backing down from that. Like, do the work of the ministry. My job is to equip you to do the ministry. But we typically talk about it in the broad terms of all of the ministry of the church, right? You need to be on a service team. You need to be sharing your faith. You need to be doing the work of ministry. We use it for all ministry situations. And and, and again, I want to be clear, I don't think that's wrong. I'm not going to stop doing that when we need to challenge each other to do the work of the ministry. Because it is true that God has given prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And that does include all ministry. What's so interesting, and I just never really picked up on it before the significance of it, is that this verse is smack dab in the middle of a conversation regarding relationships. And I don't think Paul just randomly threw it in there. Where it was one of those like, you know, he's writing, so I'm going to come back to this later, now let me keep going. No, no, it's, it's in a context for a reason. It's in the middle of a conversation regarding relationships. And what that tells us is that while it can be applied broadly, the specific ministry context that Paul is talking about here, that God has given pastors and teachers and evangelists and apostles for, the specific ministry that we are to equip you for is the ministry of building up the body. It's all about your relationship to the body of Christ. I mean, you see it somewhat even fleshed out in the progression of the verse right there, right? He says, and he himself gave some to be apostles and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ, right? So why has he given these these individuals? And it says, well, to equip you to do ministry. And then almost as if Paul knew that the very next question would be like, what ministry are you talking about? He says, to build up the body of Christ. To build up the body of Christ. When he speaks of building up the body of Christ, he, he's speaking of mutually edifying one another. Where, where we are pressing and pushing and loving one another in such a way that at the end of the day, we'll look more like Jesus. We'll talk more about that in a, in a moment. But, but, I, but I want you to hear this. Our, our relationships, our friendships, they are ultimately ministry opportunities. 
And here's why this is so important. Here's, here's why it matters. Because when we see friendship as ministry, we will cease to see friendship as optional. When we as Christians see deep, meaningful friendship as ministry, we will cease to see friendship as optional. Because ministry is never optional for a believer. And, and here's why. Right? In, in Paul's address to the church here in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, he says that ministry is to be carried out by the saints. So then the question is, well, who are the saints? Well, Paul in a different letter answers that question in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. We see this picture of who the saints are. He says, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of, of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. And so notice that Paul says there in 1 Corinthians that those who are called saints are those who have placed their faith in Jesus like every other believer who has placed your faith in Jesus. And so what we see is that if we have placed our faith in Jesus, we are counted among the saints. Who does the work of ministry? The saints, you and me. Every believer is called based on God's grace to be counted among the saints. It is not man's choice, but rather God's by which we are adopted into his family. Therefore, it's not our choice, but God's, whether or not we will engage in ministry. And God has clearly laid out a plan, we see it here in Ephesians, for every believer to be involved in God-glorifying, kingdom-building ministry. The call to ministry is synonymous with the call to faith. When you place your faith in Jesus, you are not only accepting salvation, but you are accepting a call to ministry, to die to self and to live for Christ. Therefore, if friendship is indeed ministry and we, the saints, are neglecting deep friendship, we are being disobedient to the call that God has placed on our lives to build up the body of Christ, to do the work of ministry. Now, I know that the temptation when you hear that is to say, all right, well then what you're telling me is that biblical friendship is just something I just have to do, right? I just got to check it off my list. I got to make sure I got a few friends so that Jesus will be happy with me so that I'll be seen as faithful. The, the temptation is to see friendship as merely a task to be completed rather than a joy to be celebrated. But, but let me remind you of this. God never calls us to anything that is not for his glory and also for our good. Therefore, we celebrate this call to friendship as ministry because we know that biblical friendship is for our good. And this leads to the final point that I have for you this morning. Our relationships are meant to make us and those we are in relationship with look more like Jesus. Our relationships are meant to make us and those who are in relationships with us look more, or I'm sorry, those we are in relationship with look more like Jesus. Look at what Paul says there beginning in verse 13 through the end of this section. Paul says, until we all reach unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness, 
and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, that's you and me, it promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. So, so what, what, is, what is Paul saying here? Well, what Paul says is this, that the building up of the body that these deep relationships that we are called to be in, that they should, if they are truly biblical, result in unity, in faith, and in the knowledge of God's Son. So, so, so let me pause there for a minute. This gives us insight into what makes biblical friendship different from worldly friendship. Because worldly friendship says... Our chief aim is to know one another and delight in one another as much as possible. But biblical friendship says our chief aim is to know God and to delight in Him as much as possible. This does not mean that we won't know each other well. I would argue for that to happen. We have to know each other well. We have to go into the depths of one another's souls to help point people to Jesus and so that we can look more like him. This doesn't mean that we won't delight in one another. We should delight in our friends. Friends are a gift from God, a good thing given to us to be enjoyed and, and for us to delight in. But, but for real friendship, for biblical friendship, that's not the end goal. The end goal isn't that we would just really delight in one another. The end goal isn't that we would really like one another and that we would enjoy going on vacations and spending time together, that we would enjoy having meals together. And listen, I pray that you develop friendships where all of those things take place, but it's not the end goal of biblical friendship. The end goal of biblical friendship is that at the end of the day, because you were in deep friendship with this person, you looked more like Jesus as a result. You looked more like Jesus as a result. And so what this means, and listen, this is a large part of what we will flesh out in the weeks to come, so this is just kind of an appetizer. This means that biblical friendships demand that our ultimate goal is to help one another look like Jesus. It means we laugh and enjoy the gifts God has given us together. It means we celebrate together the grace we have received in Christ Jesus. And when's the last time you did that? When's the last time you were around your friends and you just took a minute to celebrate the fact that you were both redeemed by grace? It means that you deal with sin and struggle to fight for one another's holiness. Biblical friendship, and we'll dive into this deep in a few weeks, it means that we step into the messy, nasty, dark corners of our friends' hearts, that we allow people into the, the, the messy, dark, nasty parts of our own hearts, and we fight in friendship to make much of Jesus and to root out the sin that is present in our life. It means that we walk through life with our brothers and sisters with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. It means that our friendships should ultimately result in us doing one another spiritual good. And again, I would argue that this requires real friendship, not just community, but real friendship. Because you might be thinking, 
And I was thinking it even as I was writing this, ser- this, this sermon. Well, Michael, the passage actually says nothing about friendship. It's in the context of the local church. So, so, so how do you get to the point of biblical friendship? And you see, I, I'm aware that the context of this passage is to the church at large, to not the, the global church, but to a local church, the entire body. But what we have to understand is that the depth that is required for this kind of growth to take place, it demands deep friendships that form out of the covenant community. You see, our goal, our goal is not that every member of New Breed would be in deep biblical friendship with every other member of New Breed because it's impossible. Because what we'll see is that this deep friendship demands time, it demands effort, it demands sacrifice, and just to call it what it is, we can't do that with every person in this body. But the goal, what I long to see is that we have this covenant community of new breed and within that are overlapping, overlapping circles of just deep friendship where you are pressing into one another, you are spurring one another on, and it is okay if the depth of my relationship with Niall doesn't match the depth of my relationship with Deshaun. It's okay. We still have to love one another. We have to be a covenant community, but we also have to make sure that Deshaun is in, is in deep biblical friendship with, with Chris and that there are these overlapping circles of deep friendships that form out of the covenant community. You see, the church is the starting place for this growth, but the real development will only happen in friendship. You know, in his book, Made for Friendship, as Drew Hunter is speaking of Hebrews 10, you remember Hebrews 10, uh, around verse 24, where it talks about let us not, or let us consider, uh, let us consider one another uh, in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but all the more as you see the day drawing near. As he's speaking of that, he, he makes this statement. It's, it's another passage that's in the context of the entire covenant community, but one that Drew Hunter believes could only be played out in deep friendships. And this is what he says. He says, in context, these are directions for the entire church community. But how does this get worked out in practice? It gets worked out in friendship. We can't experience the everyday encouragement with every person in our church. But this command gets traction as we carry it out in smaller networks of relationships and friendships. And I would say the same is true of this scripture in Ephesians 4 as that of Hebrews 10. That the context of it is for the church at large. We want to see new breed as a whole made to look more like Jesus. We want day by day to reflect more and more of the God that we serve. But what we understand is the only way for that to truly be fleshed out is in deep biblical friendship. Our relationships, our friendships, if they are to be biblical friendships, if they are to truly be meaningful friendships that will make us and and those we are in look more like Jesus, if they are to be biblical friendship, they have to be focused around who God is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And And I just want to throw this out there as we draw this to a close. It should not surprise us that biblical friendship is so significant. Because Jesus cared deeply about friendship. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 15, I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what the master is doing. 
I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my Father. That's incredible when you think about it. Jesus was a friend. He didn't start out that way with the disciples. It took time. I mean, John 15 is coming toward the close of Jesus' ministry. So he's potentially been with these brothers for a couple of years, and he finally says, listen, I don't, I don't consider you servants anymore. I consider you friends, and that is high praise from the King of Kings. Jesus was a friend. As he walked with his disciples, he was developing real friendships, friendships built around helping his disciples see God more clearly, and in so doing, they went from servants to friends, but even more, even more, church, the cross testifies to us that Jesus cares about friendship, the cross. Because as Ed Welch writes in his book, Caring for One Another, I love this quote. He says, the cross was history's most heroic act of friendship. A friendship. So well, where do you get that from? John 15, 13. No one has greater love than this, than they would lay down their life for their friends. The cross was history's most historic act of friendship. And we see it because what does the cross produce? Friends of God. Right? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are alienated from God. We are set apart from God. We have no hope. Listen, it's not that we're just struggling and we need a little help. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are by nature children of wrath. God should rightly destroy us. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Jesus Christ came into this world and he lived and even in his life, we see him turning servants into friends. He faithfully fulfilled the law. He modeled for us everything that obedience is. And he's the only one who did not deserve death. And yet he willingly died on the cross in our place. He didn't do it for him. He didn't need to die. He did it for us. And as we know, God poured out in that moment on the cross all of his hatred and anger and the scolding wrath of a righteous judge on Jesus. And he drank the Father's cup for us. And he was killed and buried and three days later raised from the dead. And you know I love this verse in Romans. He was crucified for our transgressions and he was raised for our justification. And in that resurrection, we have hope that we can be made right with God by coming in faith and repentance and trusting in what Jesus has done and agreeing with God that how we're doing it's not the best way. And the amazing, the most amazing thing happens when we place our faith in Jesus and repent of our sin. We're not only counted as children of God, which is amazing in and of itself, but like Abraham, because of our faith, we are counted as a friend of God. The cross makes us friends with God. The cross was history's most heroic act of friendship. And so again, we shouldn't be surprised that friendship matters. And it should matter to us. It should matter to us. So as we bring this to a close, let me say this. With this sermon, my hope is that this foundation has been laid somewhat. 
I hope I have adequately presented to you truth from Scripture, nothing else than biblical friendship matters. Uh, that, that was the goal of these past two weeks. I just want you walking out of here saying biblical friendship matters. It's okay if you're walking out saying, how in the world do I grow biblical friendship? How do I develop it? We'll come to that, but I just want you to understand that, that biblical friendship matters. The Bible is not silent on this. And over the next few weeks, I want to hopefully flesh out how we develop biblical friendships, what they should look like, and towards the end, give you examples of these friendships from Scripture. But here's my prayer as we close. My prayer is that we would see, first and foremost, the friendship extended to us by the Father in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you are here and you have not trusted in Jesus, I want you to know that this type of friendship that is for your good, that glorifies God, that, that it, is, it is impossible for you. Because before we can be true friends to one another, we have to be friends with God. And you can be God's friend by trusting in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And I'd be happy to talk more about that with you before you leave today. But, but I, I want to... I want us to see the friendship extended by the Father and that we would long in light of that to live in healthy biblical friendships, believing that without them, we will not look like Jesus. But at the end of the day, our aim, what we should desperately long for is to look more and more like our Savior and our King. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that we don't have to guess at what matters to you. I thank you that in your word you have clearly communicated your heart to us, God. And, and one aspect of your heart is friendship. God, that we are built for friendship. And, we fail to live out the reality of being made in the image of God if we are not in biblical friendship. God, we thank you that because of the cross of Christ, we, we can be your friend. Because of the cross and the empty tomb, tomb our, our sins can be washed away. We can, we can shed these robes of death and put on robes of righteousness that come from Christ and be counted among your friends. And God, I, I want to be a friend. I want to be a friend to, to others and I want to be your friend. I want to live in and celebrate and cherish the friendship I have with you. And I pray, God, that as I do that, as we do that, that it would flow out of us as friendship with one another. God, give us grace to grow. Give us grace to value what it is that you value. And it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray.